0: I'm Mark Beattie, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease and Childhood. I'd like to highlight some of the content from the February edition of the journal. I'd like to start with an article on the shape of training. Very important. Getting the right people with the right skills into the right place. There's no doubt that medicine has changed considerably in the last 25 years and will continue to do so the population's ageing, the population with complex healthcare needs increases year on year, treatments are progressively better and more expensive, and the expectations of patients, quite rightly, increases all the time. So getting the best workforce to deliver healthcare is challenging and made more complex by the increasing complexity of medicine, reduced junior doctor cover, and the increased need for specialisation with senior cover available 24-7. These are issues we all face as clinicians all of the time and have huge implications for undergraduate and postgraduate training of the medical workforce of the future. In this issue, Robert Claiborne' and colleagues discuss key messages for postgraduate education from the Shape of Training Review, chaired by Professor David Greenaway and published in 2013. It's an interesting article to work through. The priority is to develop the right workforce to care for children, adapting the training and workforce to best meet these needs. There are important issues to address. The changing needs of patients, the need to ensure high-quality general training, the need for less rigid medical career pathways, the need for enhanced cross-discipline training and working, Academic and subspeciality training and subspecialisation per se are just some of these. It's important we all engage in the process to ensure we best meet the needs of the children of the future and that we are able to develop and retain a high-caliber motivated workforce to deliver the needs. The second article I'd like to cover relates to cerebral sinovenous thrombosis. So cerebral cyanovenous thrombosis is defined as a blood clot in a vein carrying blood to the heart. It's rare, 0.34 to 0.67 per 100,000 children annually with a previously reported mortality of 3 to 12% and a high long-term morbidity. In this issue, ICORD and colleagues report 170 children that 60% male with a median age of seven years presenting with cerebrosinovenous thrombosis over a five-year period from 10 different countries on behalf of the International Pediatric Stroke Study. Common presenting features included headache, altered consciousness, focal deficits and seizures. Infarction affected 37% and intracranial hemorrhage 31%. Risk factors included chronic disease in 50%, acute systemic illness and head and neck disorders in 41%, and a prothrombotic state in 20%. The mortality overall was 4%. Discharge neurological examination was normal in 48%. Risk of death was greater in children not given anticoagulation with an odds ratio of 5.2. Outcome was less good in children with reduced conscious level at presentation and in whom a th- pro-thrombotic state was identified. There were no other risk factors identified for poor prognosis. So this is a large study on a rare condition which highlights its heterogeneity and gives valuable information about risk factors, treatment and outcome. The authors rightly discussed the need to standardise the approach particularly with respect to anticoagulation, in the hope that this will enable further research and improve outcome. The third article I'd like to highlight from this month relates to recent advances in the management of HIV. Childhood HIV infection and AIDS remain a global challenge. In 2012, approximately 260,000 children under the age of 15 were diagnosed with HIV bringing the numbers of children estimated to be living with HIV to more than 3 million. In this issue, Bamford and colleagues review the current status of paediatric HIV in the UK and Ireland. There have been considerable successes, including the prevention of mother-to-child transmission. The change in epidemiology is discussed, with a reduction in new cases but better survival effectively meaning that the cohort is growing up. It's interesting that the emphasis has progressed beyond limiting short-term morbidity and mortality to ensuring optimum health status in adult life, and this is discussed in detail, including the importance of transition and potential need for lifelong antiretroviral therapy. The authors emphasise that lessons from this relatively small cohort are increasingly applicable to the global paediatric HIV population. The fourth article I'd like to cover relates to hospital admissions for unintentional poisoning. So, it's refreshing to see a downward trend. In this issue, Mabella Duggo and colleagues report population-based time trend analysis of all unexplained admissions for unintentional poisoning in children under the age of 5 between 2000 and 2011. Rates decreased overall from 179 per 100,000 to 139 per 100,000. This downward trend occurred across the ingestion of medicines, organic solvents, corrosive substances, pesticides and alcohol. It's really interesting that this occurred at a time when the overall admission rates to hospital have increased. The relative risk of hospital admission from the most deprived quintile compared with the least deprived quintile reduced from 2.37 to 1.54. The potential reasons for these changes are discussed in the paper and include legislative change, which includes the increase in child-resistant containers, public awareness and the impact of targeted public health education programmes there is clearly still more work to be done to reduce these numbers further. The only exception to the trend was soap and detergents. A very small proportion of the total, but just of interest, had increased from 1.4 to 3 per 100,000, and that's probably related to the introduction of liquid tabs in 2001, and clearly needs monitoring and intervention to reduce that risk. I would like to finish just by highlighting some changes in education and practice this month. So education and practice was launched as a separate edition of the journal group in 2004, initially 24 pages, four times a year, with an intention to deliver simple, practical and patient-focused continuing professional development relevant to trainee and career-grade pediatricians. It's been a great success and has gone from strength to strength since, now in its 11th year, with six editions, multiple different sections and an excellent team of editors led by Dr Ian Wacoin, ensuring up-to-date and stimulating content now endorsed by the Royal College of Paediatrics and Child Health for CPD. The page numbers increased this month from this edition from 40 to 56, and this month's highlights include a 15-minute consultation, investigation and management of epistaxis, from the interpretation series how to use the ESR, an excellent practical update on pharmacokinetics, a guideline review on the management of autism, from the quality improvement section an excellent discussion on overcoming barriers to change to improve quality of life, and challenging problem-solving cases, epilogues, dermatophiles, and pickers, as per usual. All great CPD, and fun to read. I'm Mark Beattie, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease and Childhood. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast and thanks for listening.